furnace whisking behind there, but I hated to leave it. It's uh, right to the right of that sign there. But it's really good training because we're scheduled to go to Siberia uh, in a few months to see a total solar eclipse. So we're getting ready for that. Although I'm told it's about 70 degrees over there in the summertime, which may be just Russian propaganda, I don't know. This is the end of our school vacation, as Linda knows. I have a student here, a very brave girl, who's in my seventh grade religion class at Lutheran High School, and comes out on Sundays to me, and I didn't even tell her it was extra credit for doing this. <laughs> school should always be so pleasant. I teach physics at Lutheran High School, and the results are not always that exhilarating. I use my voice right now, but I think I'll make it. Like the other day, I gave a test back in physics, which was not always as good as it should be, and in exasperation, I said, I want all you dumbbells to get up. Well, that's not something the teacher should say. And nobody got to their feet, so finally one student in the back row got up, and to my amazement, I said, do you mean to say you admit you're a dumbbell? And he said, no, but I hate to see you standing there alone. <laughs> That's what teaching is like today, with all the liberation that's going on, so you have to be very careful. The topic for this morning, as you saw in your church bulletin, which is a very fine publication, by the way, it's not just because I was on the front page, but I have rarely seen a church with as professional a newspaper. There must be someone in the newspaper business in charge of that. Very well done. But uh, as I mentioned in that periodical, the series that we're going to be engaged in is called Science and the Christian Faith. And so we're going to talk about, first of all this morning, what science is, the next time what faith is, and then uh, two other topics after that that have to do with science and faith. And the question of science, of course, is one that's very much in the news and on television, especially with the recent series that I'm sure many of you saw parts of by Dr. Carl Sagan called Cosmos. I don't know if there has been a single scientific presentation that has aroused as much public interest and curiosity as Dr. Sagan's presentation has. I had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Sagan not so long ago about his own religious beliefs, and we'll get into that a little bit later on because that's part of the topic today, what do our scientists today think about God? And the unfortunate thing about Cosmos on television and about Dr. Carl Sagan is that there's very little in it about God, which is quite natural because Dr. Sagan himself is an agnostic. He told me that he does not um, either practice his own uh, Hebrew upbringing nor does he believe that there is a God who is concerned about people's affairs. That's unfortunate, because I'm here to tell you today that the scientists of the world, by the great majority, do not agree with Dr. Sagan. And the interviews that I did of scientists in various countries bring out the fact that the percentage of believing scientists today is probably larger than the average of people generally. And we'll refer to that in more detail. I'd like to begin uh, the presentation this morning by telling you what I feel are some of the frontiers of science today and of technology, and then what some of the problems are that we're confronting 
and how scientists feel we can deal with those problems and how it relates to our life as Christians. The first area of science that I'd like to discuss, which is my own very favorite area, is that of astronomy, which was indeed that also the area that Dr. Sagan dealt with in his television series. And in future sessions, I hope you will remember to bring Bibles because we're going to refer to the Bible very frequently, since it is certainly the source of all knowledge and truth. And I'd like to begin this discussion of astronomy with Job chapter 38, verses 1 to 5. It says, Then out of the storm the Lord spoke to Job. And the Lord said, Who are you to question my wisdom with your ignorant, empty words? Stand up now like a man and answer the questions I ask you. Were you there when I made the world? If you know so much, tell me about it. Who decided how large it would be? Who stretched the measuring line over it? Do you know all the answers? Then in verse 31, he continues, can you tie the Pleiades together? I wonder whether anyone is familiar with the Pleiades. This happens to be the first mention in any book ever written by uh, of something in the sky. The Pleiades are a group of stars that you can see right now in the sky. And this is the first mention uh, by name of a star in any book. Supposedly a book of Job, as I understand it was written before any of the other books of the Bible. Can you tie the Pleiades together or loosen the bonds <coughs> that hold Orion? And Orion is the constellation that is so beautiful in the winter sky right now. Can you guide the stars season by season and direct the big and little river? It's amazing to many people, and in the first week of my astronomy class, I give extra credit to anyone who finds where in the Bible a star is mentioned. I don't give them any hint as to which book the Bible is, so by the time they get to Job, they've read the Do you know the laws that govern the skies? And can you make them apply to the earth? And then again in verse 19, do you know where the light comes from or what the source of darkness is? Can you show them how far to go or send them back again? I'm sure you can because you're so old and were there when the world was made. So there's a little sarcasm there. But how appropriate to our discussion of astronomy today that the Lord should ask Job, do you know all these things? Were you there when it was all made? And it was significant to me in the first program of Cosmos, Dr. Sagan starts off by saying, and he almost sounds like Job with all his wisdom, and he said, the Cosmos is all there is, and all there ever will be, and all there ever was. That was a perfect statement of the philosophy of people who do not believe in God ruling his cosmos. It was a worship, a statement of the worship of humanism, the worship of the human mind, <clears throat> that we will eventually be able to answer all questions and have all knowledge. And that's where the battle is today, between God and humanism. 
And that is what I'd like to address myself to in this series. How can we as Christians address the world that is by and large dedicated to the worship of humanism and of the human mind? How can we identify this enemy and how can we combat that foe? The question of how big the universe is is something that, as Job records here, and as the Lord told him, we will never know. And if there is anything that scientists told me in all the countries in which I had the privilege of talking to them about this question, is that science will never know. Science is not a body of knowledge that is constantly increasing and getting closer to ultimate truth. That is a wrong presentation of what science is. Unfortunately, our textbooks promulgate this view that science is a better way of arriving at truth than any other kind of pursuit. Scientists told me over and over again, Nobel Prize winners and all, that science is a search and that science will never establish absolute truth. In fact, science always finds more questions than it answers. <coughs> the astronauts told me that the one thing that we learned by spending $40 billion on going to the moon is that we don't know as much about the moon as we thought we did. That's all. In fact, we have not even looked at 90% of the rocks that we brought back. I talked to a man from NASA two weeks ago and he told me that we have only received money to study about 10% of the 800 some pounds of rocks that we brought back 10 years ago. And even the 10% that we studied have revealed more puzzles than they have answered. That is the message that people should gather from science. Not that it's giving us answers, but that it is raising more and more questions. It's not replacing God. It's making God more and more necessary because it's showing us how ignorant we really are. A very intelligent person, one scientist told me, is a person who knows how dumb he is. A lot of people don't know that, and that's why Shakespeare said a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, because the people with a little knowledge think they know a great deal. Astronomy is a good example. We don't know how big the universe is. There are two theories about it. One, that the universe is 18 billion light years. That means light years is a distance. 18 billion years for the light to get from one side of the universe to the other. That's how big it is. The other theory is that that theory is not true. <laughs> a few months ago, an astronomer in St. Louis published a document in a very prestigious astronomical journal in which he said, that the universe is not 18 billion light years, that it's only 9 billion light years. Well, if you do that very often, you're not going to have much universe left. You see, the whole thing is based on the idea that the universe is expanding. Now, why do we think the universe is expanding? Because a few years ago, a person found in a very, very tiny little piece of film that the lines of the spectrum of the light coming from stars is shifted to the red side. That's called the Doppler shift. 
It's the same device that the police use to track people through the radar. Because the sound waves and radar waves that come out of his machine in the squad car bounce from your car and come back, and they're shifted because of the relative motion between the squad car and your car. By the way, it's not true that they plot trees at 80 miles an hour. It's not true. It's propaganda by people who are trying to sell radar fuzzbusters. But the Doppler shift of, this, of the radar to your car and back tells how fast you're going. In the same way, the Doppler shift of the lines of the spectrum of stars indicates that the stars are all moving away from us. And the farther away they are, the faster they're moving. That's the discovery of the red shift. Now all we have to do, you see, is build bigger and bigger telescopes till we see a shift <coughs> that is so far out that it can't go any faster. What does that mean? It means it's going as fast as the speed of light. And as everybody knows, Einstein said that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. Therefore, we've looked at the edge of the universe. That is a very nice theory. The only thing wrong with it is it may not be true. It may not be true. It may be that the lines are shifted to the red side of the spectrum for some other reason. Maybe it's gotten tired all those years coming here. We'd shift a little bit too if we've been going for 18 billion years. We don't know. We simply don't know. And to say that the universe is expanding must always be taken as a great big chunk of salt. It may not be true. And if somebody comes out with a better explanation of the shift of the lines next year, then we're all going to flock to that side of the fence and say, now scientists believe that the universe was created five years ago or something like that. Theories are not to believe, ladies and gentlemen. Scientists do not believe theories. My good friend and colleague, Dr. Huffer, who's now 86 and with whom I'm starting to write another astronomy textbook, at his suggestion, told me one time he thinks that there are more theories of the evolution of the solar system than there are astronomers. I said, Dr. Hunter, we're getting carried away, aren't we? There are more theories than there are astronomers. He said, there certainly are. I have two myself. <laughs> you see, a theory is not for believing. A theory is for testing, for trying the mind. A theory is for flexing your muscles. Weightlifters pump iron. Scientists pump theories. <coughs> the best illustration of that is this best-selling new book. It's not exactly a pocket size. I don't know whether you've seen it. It's a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called Gadel, Escher, and Bach. It's going so rapidly, the bookstore I went to, I had it filed on the floor in front of the cash register. This is very difficult reading. The reason I got into it is because I read in Scientific American this month, I don't know how many of you read the mathematical column in that magazine by Martin Gardner. Martin Gardner is a genius. He's been doing that column for about 20 years, at least. He's retiring to take his place. A man is starting a column on words and on the meaning of language. And he had to mention this book as one of the best in the field on what do words mean. The next day, I got a letter from our daughter Gretchen, who is in the computer. She's a computer instructor near Chicago. And she said, Dad, surely you've read Gail Escher Bach. <laughs> well, of course. Where do I get it? 
And then the next day after that, I got a letter from a former student who is now a computer engineer, and he said, Professor, be sure and read Gade Leisure. Wow, so I read, I'm on page 46 <laughs> out of 760. In case you don't know, Gadel Escher Bach. Bach you've heard of. Music, right? Well, the last piece of music that Bach ever wrote, I don't know if you saw his biography during Christmas, Bach on TV. The last piece he ever wrote was at the request of King Frederick the Great. That was the greatest piece of music Bach ever wrote in his life. In fact, it may be the greatest piece of music ever written, period. What Bach did in that invention of music, or whatever he called the last piece, was also done in mathematics and in art by these two other people. Gadel was a mathematician, Escher was an artist, and Bach was a musician. And this author says that all three of these people dealt with the same problem, and that is how to use words, or how to use music, or how to use paintings to put across ideas. And the question is, is reality like a word or not? Can we really adequately express reality by talking to each other or by playing music or anything else? And the answer is obviously no. Reality is reality. But we will never be able adequately, completely, to tell each other what it's like or how we feel or anything else about the cosmos or the universe. And that's what we're faced with, of course, in the question of science. Science is the the area in which we talk about the universe. Anytime we describe the universe, we're talking about science. The word science really means knowledge. The word in German is much more descriptive. It is Wissenschaft. And the complete word is Naturwissenschaft. Knowledge about the universe. That's science. And I like the German word for a scientist much better. Scientist, that sounds very mysterious. Naturwissenschaftler. Oh, that's big. So anybody who talks about the universe is a scientist. And what bigger area of science is there than the cosmos, astronomy, how big it is? That's the frontier today in astronomy. How big is the universe? 18 billion light years? 9 billion light years? We can't even imagine those numbers. Only the national debt is bigger. 9 billion light years. The next question is, What's going to happen to the universe? Imagine people living on Earth here trying to figure out what's going to happen to the universe. Is it going to last forever? Was it there forever? Carl Sagan says it was there forever because he told me if you don't believe that it'll be there forever or was there forever, you have to believe in God. And he doesn't want to do that, you see. He'd rather have the universe there forever. Well, the Big Bang says the universe was not there forever. It began. It began with a bang. I heard Edward Teller one time, the man who made the hydrogen bomb, talk about this. The creation of the universe. And he was always talking about so many years AC. And I said, what do you mean AC? Already current? He said, no, after creation. Because no one can ever have a theory, he said, of how the universe began. No scientist has any idea of how things got here in the first place. All theories begin with material being here. 
The Big Bang Theory says, once upon a time, there was the cosmic egg. So what was first, the chicken or the egg? The cosmic egg, where the whole universe was as big as the head of a pin. Can you imagine that? No, nobody can. Then it exploded, and it's been exploding ever since. Now, will it go on forever, exploding? Did it begin with a bang, and will it end with a whisper? The, all, the, the entire deciding issue is whether the universe will get tired after a while and stop expanding and come back together and bang over again. Then it'll go on forever like that, back and forth, bang, bang. Well, at the present time, astronomers all over the world agree, well, I shouldn't say they all agree, many astronomers believe that the universe will not come back together because it does not contain enough material to pull itself back together and come into the egg again and bang once more. Of course, there are other astronomers who believe that that theory is not true. They say there is a lot of material in space that we simply haven't discovered yet. And once we find the rest of the material, then we'll know that the universe will pull itself back together and we'll have another bang. In fact, some of those astronomers are now asking Congress for, as Sagan would say, millions and billions of dollars <laughs> in order to build a trap to find the particles that we haven't been finding before. <coughs> and they're putting thousands and thousands of gallons of the fluid down in a mine in Nebraska to see if those materials really exist. And if they do, then maybe the universe will come back together. Does that really matter to you and me whether the universe will, in five billion years, slow down and come back together? It doesn't really bother me a great deal. But it's part of our desire to know. We want to know. God created us with the desire to know. That's a godly desire. Satan did not put that in us. God did. Somebody said once to Renner von Braun, Dr. Von Braun, I don't think God wants us to know any of these things. We are not supposed to go up there. In fact, she said, the woman who wrote to him, I don't think we should go to the moon because the Bible says that we shouldn't go to the moon, therefore she bets we'll never get there. Dr. Von Braun wrote her back and said, Madam, I read the Bible, and it doesn't say anything about going to the moon, but it says in quite a few places we shouldn't bet. <laughs> <laughs> desire to know is from the Lord. And if he doesn't want us to know something, we're not going to know it. Don't worry about it. He wouldn't be God if we could find something out that he didn't want us to know. So how big the universe is and whether it's going to expand and contract back and forth is part of our godly image. We want to know. Should we spend that much money on a tank of fluid? That's another question that President Reagan will have to deal with and our representatives. There are other things that we might spend the money on. Should we spend money on finding out if the sun has gone out? Dr. Jack Eddy was with us on a cruise in the Pacific to see an eclipse. In one of his lectures, he said, the sun is out. I said that in my class one time, one of the students says, no, it's not out, it's on. <laughs> Words again, you know, what's out and what's on. Eddy meant the sun has used its fuel. So we said, well, Dr. Eddie, how come it's still shining? 
Well, that's because on the inside it has gone out and the heat is just coming through the sun and getting to the surface now. And by the time it comes to the surface, then everything will go black and cold. Oh boy, how long will that be? Well, it all depends on when you went out on the inside. And we've never been in there. So if you want to worry about something this morning, <laughs> worry about whether the sun is out or on or whatever. Well, let's get to another topic. That's astronomy on which I'd love to spend a great deal of time, but there are other areas, the frontiers of science today. You want to get a real good discussion going in physics, and we're going to have a big physics convention in New York City this month, where all the latest theories are going to be built up in power now. And the whole frontier of physics today is how small is matter? See, in astronomy, is how big is everything? Physics is how small is everything? Well, there's a theory today that everything in the universe is made out of had it here a moment ago. Well, I'll find it. That everything in the universe is made out of quark. <laughs> What's quark? Well, in Germany last summer, Margaret and I were at a grocery store, we saw this quark. Meretti quark. Well, that's a German word on top, it means horseradish. <laughs> but quark, <laughs> what is that? Well, it's a word again that somebody made up. Dr. Murray Gell-Mann in California one day sat there. I asked him, how did you come up with that word quark? He said, I was just sitting there and it came to me. Why did you make it up? Because we needed a word to say what everything is made out of. Well, when you and I went to school, everything was made out of. Protons, neutrons, electrons, right? old hat. That's only three particles. Now we're up to 200. Now we've got pi mesons, mu mesons, neutrinos, antineutrinos, hyperons, deuterons, and so on. All over the place. In Newstead, not so long ago, Earl Lane, who's a very fine science writer, did a story on quark. And on the front of part two, he had a picture of six kinds of quarks. I wrote to Earl Lane later and I said, Earl, how come when scientists know about 18 kinds of quarks, you've only got six of them? And then there's a beautiful quark, and there's an up quark, and a down quark, and an anti-true quark. Who's making all this up? Well, it's not so funny anymore when you realize that on Long Island, we're now building a machine out at Brookhaven National Laboratory that will cost $450 million to look for quarks. <laughs> I don't really care quite that much. <laughs> And I'm told that the overrun will probably be much higher than $450 billion. It will be the world's most powerful machine. It will use more electricity than anything in Long Island except the Long Island Railroad. <laughs> when they turn the thing on, the lights dim. So look for quarks. Because we think quarks make up everything. Protons, neutrons, electrons, deuterons are all probably made of quarks. 
It reminds me of the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. To have faith is to be sure of the things we hope for, to be certain of the things we cannot see. Well, that takes a lot of faith to believe in a quark, because we'll never see one. It was by their faith that people of ancient times won God's approval. It is by faith that we understand that the universe was created by God's word. And here, the next part is what many scientists I speak to think is the biblical reference to the atomic theory. What can be seen was made out of what cannot be seen. That is a very profound remark. Everything we see is made of things you cannot see. Physicists I talk to today tell me that religion and science are very close in this respect, that both science and religion believe in the reality of invisible things and of spiritual things, that you and I and the whole universe are really not there physically that we're all made of something that when you break it down far enough is not there at all. That everything in our bodies and in this room and in the universe is really composed only of energy, of a vibration. And my own theory is that when God said, let there be light, he was saying, let energy become visible. Maybe he took some of his energy and said, let's make a universe out of it. Let's make it so you can see it and feel it. And then we'll make people who can see and feel those other things. And perhaps in the same space that we occupy, other things exist with different vibrations and different wavelengths. Why not? God can do it all. As it says, by faith, we believe that God has done these things. We weren't there. Nobody was there. Nobody will be there when the whole thing is destroyed either. As the Bible says, it will all burn with a fervent heat, which agrees perfectly with modern scientific theory that the sun will become a nova. And will, before it comes all the way out, before it's burned out to a cold cinder, will explode and burn up all the planets. Another theory, of course, says it's not true. Something else will happen. One other instance I'd like to give you of what science is today before we go on. And that is what's happening in the field of biology. I have to be the first to admit that I'm out of my own field there. And all I can do is to repeat to you what others have told me who are authorities in biology. One of the men I had the privilege of interviewing is Sir John Eccles. Eccles won the Nobel Prize. He's from Switzerland in physiology for his work on nerve endings, on ganglions and neurons and uh, the synapse where these come together and where messages are transferred from one nerve to the other without a connection between them. All the nerve endings have a space where the message and information is transmitted from one to the other without a physical connection. This is very much like a transformer on the pole outside where the electricity gets from Lilco into your house without a wire. It jumps across the space in that black box, as you probably know, 
called a transformer. There's no connection at all. It's the energy jumping from one wire to the other without any physical conductivity at all. This is exactly what happens in our brain. This is how all the messages are transferred in our body. There's a jump from one to the other. And in an address that I heard Sir John Eccles give to Nobel Prize winners from around the world, there were 4,000 people present, most of them scientists, listening to Eccles talk about the topic, the new frontier of science, the brain-mind problem. The brain-mind problem. Now what did he mean by that? The brain is the physical thing inside our head. The mind is our personality. The real we, when the real we stands up, or a real us, or I, or whatever the right grammar is, that's the mind. It's your mind that told you this morning that you're the same person who went to sleep last night. There is no physical explanation why you should think you are the person today that you were yesterday. That's what Eckhart said. He said there are even instances in his laboratory where he can show that a person can think a thought without using his brain. And my students do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did he mean? Sorry about that, <laughs> Some of the students do that. What he meant was that in his laboratory, he has been able to show that a person can think something without brain waves being generated. How many people know that brain waves are a sign of life? Alpha, theta, and so on. In the brain, when you're wired up for brain waves, you can even buy a machine today where you test your brain waves and you learn to exercise them so you can think better. Well, when your brain waves are flat, many doctors will say the person is dead. The last breakfast, remember the doctor from were you the one last month? Yeah, From the uh, medical center here in East Meadow. Uh, there's a Christian businessman practice every month in the Holiday Inn in Plainview that I just love to attend because you hear Christian witnesses that are just tremendous. And this head of the pediatrics division of Meadowbrook Hospital <coughs> told us a few weeks ago that he went into a room where there was a child without brain waves. For two or three days it went on. There were no brain waves. Well, I'm getting a little ahead of the story. I'll tell that another Sunday. We're running out of time. I want to tell you that Sir John Eccles said that the mind is immortal because it has no physical connection. Now, that's from a Nobel Prize-winning scientist speaking to other scientists at a scientific meeting. It's not a religious convention. He said he had proof that a person is more than physical and that this frontier between the physical and the spiritual is today's real frontier of science. And that the people who say that we can solve all our problems in a science laboratory don't know any science. They're just doing wishful thinking. I talked to him many times since then and asked him about his own religious conviction. And he said that his science fortifies his belief in God and shows the necessity for believing and for looking for God's revealed truth. Well, we can go on with other frontiers. These are three examples of where we're at in science today. How big is the universe? How small is the universe? And what about this whole area 
that is not physical, that we call the mind. Now, with that background, I'm going to spend a few more minutes before we have time for a question and discussion on where science really came from and what it believes it can do. Now, the idea of knowing about the universe, of course, is a very ancient one. Ever since people have been on Earth, I used to say humanity, but with the movement today, I was told today you shouldn't call a person a human anymore, you should call them a new person. <laughs> so, from the beginning of you personally, there has been this inquisitiveness to know what the universe is like. While the people who first organized it the best were the Greeks. That may be because they had more time. <laughs> the Greeks, you know, had a lot of uh, land and they had a lot of slaves. The slaves did the work and so the Greeks had time to sit around and think about things. And when Paul came to Greece and to Athens, he said, I notice you're very intelligent, you have all these statues here. So the Greeks were the philosophers, and so they were perhaps the first scientists. It was Aristotle who first sat down and figured out what everything is made of. And he didn't have all the quarks either, he only had four things. Air, earth, fire, and water, that's what everything is made of. We still call them the four elements, according to Aristotle. Four, that's all. Well. Later we found out he wasn't quite right, but it took thousands of years to find out that Aristotle was wrong because he was so famous that when Aristotle said something, he didn't question it. It's that way today, you know. If Einstein said something, it must be true. We don't know what he said, really, but it must be true. I talked to his best friend, Dr. Max Born, just before he died in Germany. And the one thing I learned was never say Einstein anymore because his friends is Einstein. So that's why Einstein said something, we believe it. Well, to the great credit of the Lutheran Church, science was reborn in the Reformation. It was at the time of the Reformation that we began to question not only what the Church had said, but what Aristotle said. And so modern science began with the Reformation. That's something you can say even in a school where they don't allow you by law to mention God, you know. You're not allowed to talk about God in science unless you're in a school like Lutheran High School or Grace Lutheran School where you can talk about God. But even in a public institution like Nassau Community College, I can tell my students, modern science began with the religious reformation that came during the Renaissance. It wasn't just the Renaissance, which means the awakening. Well, why was there an awakening? There was an awakening because people were questioning what was happening with the leadership of the time, which was the church. And with that questioning came the questioning of Aristotle's theories in science. And so science organized its quest for knowledge. It became known as the scientific method. First you have a question, then you organize all the information you have, then you come up with a theory, then you go into the laboratory, or here in England you go into the laboratory, and then you test it out, and you come up with a conclusion. But what many people forget in that scientific method is that the conclusion is not the end. 
The word conclusion is really the wrong word for it. Conclusion means the end, and it isn't the end. In science, when you reach a conclusion, it's just the beginning. Because the conclusion always says, so far as we know, this is true. So far as we know. Unfortunately, when you write textbooks, you don't have enough room to put that first part in. So we forget to put in the part so far as we know. And then we just say the rest. And people come home and say, oh, mom and dad, look what it says in this book here. Must be true because it's in this book. Well, that's not the case. So far as we know means up to the present time, as often as we've tried it, this seems to be the case. Later on, we're going to try it some more, and we're going to find out something else is the case. The important thing is not knowing science. The important thing is doing science. Somebody asked Einstein a question once, and he didn't know. And the person said, Dr. Einstein, you don't know. And he said, no, if I want to know that, I look it up. You see, a scientist is a person who does something, not just who knows a bunch of things or tries to memorize them. I'd hate to go to a doctor for an important operation who tries to recall by memory what the inside of my body looks like. I want him to study the night before and look it up with every move of the operation and even have the book there so he can refer to the diagram in case he finds something he didn't see before. And that's what a scientist does. He has handbooks that fat, and he looks it up, and he says, now we think. But at the end of every quest, it always says, now, this is what needs to be studied further. These are other <coughs> questions that have been raised. And never, never, never does the scientist, in all his quests, answer the question, why something is a certain way? Why? is this and why is that? Dr. Williams, colleague from NASA. In the quest that I made, and I referred in the uh, introductory part of, or at least when I mentioned to, talk to Pastor Eifert that I was going to do this series, that I had the opportunity to go to various countries and ask scientists the question, what is science? And in this volume, uh, the God of Science the most common answer that I found from them was that science only answers the question how, never why. Only how does this work, how does that work. I remember Dr. Walter Bratton telling me at Bell Telephone Laboratories, the man who invented the transistor for Bell Telephone. When you talk to your students, he says, about science, always tell them that science <laughs> is the explanation of how things work. Never why. Because the question of why is a religious question and can never be answered in the laboratory. Theories are for studying, not for believing. Well, it's 9.45, and this is the time that we had set for discussion and comment. Unless someone uh, has to leave for a rehearsal or something, I want to make sure to use the mark here. <coughs> While you're thinking of something or contemplating something,
any further topics for us to talk about. I don't know if there'll be time for this to go all the way around, but I'd like to pass around a little piece of material here as a kind of a quest. I told you that science is the study of how things work and never of why. Another way a scientist puts this question is that science that science is the study of the universe as a black box. Now this is black. You can't really take it apart because it's solid. All I'm asking you to do is to look at it and tell me what you think it is. Because when you probe the question of what the universe is made of, we approach it as a black box. You can't really ever ultimately answer the question of what it is. You can probe it. And the way in which you probe it will reveal a great deal about how much science you know. You shake it, use an x-ray on it, specific gravity. All kinds of tests can be performed on what that black box called our universe is. What may be, every so often somebody has the background to be able to take one look at that and tell me right away that's what it is. But as a rule, the answers I get to what that material is tells me more about you than it does about that my thing. Because it will reveal what kinds of questions you're able to ask and what kind of background you bring to it. Yes, ma'am. When you just said spark, I felt that there was a, a little bit belittling and I don't believe you meant it that way. I was listening to other discussing. And it's completely over my head. But I'm awfully glad that someone with a scientific mind to be able to investigate these things is doing it. Because sometimes when a scientist finds out how something works, it is for the benefit of humankind. Certainly not always. But did you mean to be the Well, I didn't quite finish the story of the quark. As I look at it again here, I didn't even tell you in German what a quark is. But to answer your question first, I mentioned the construction of the machine at Brookhaven, and that may have sounded somewhat belittling because it is a great deal of money, and some people think that it is not wisely spent. The second part, uh, I was not trying to belittle it. I make my living teaching astronomy and physics, so I wouldn't want to do that. Right. The other thing that should be brought out is that there's a distinction between science and technology. You mentioned that oftentimes a quest in science leads to a useful result. A scientist is a person who tries to establish truth, regardless of the consequences. It is not a scientist's problem or assignment to find out what benefit there is to a quark. It's his job to find the quark. The person who takes the quark and puts it to use is a technologist or an engineer. And we didn't have time yet before to talk about the frontiers of technology. So it's entirely possible, and the people who do the work in, uh, in science for the quark will say, once we found what the quark is like and whether it's there, then it can be applied. Then someone else will do the applying. It could very well be that we'll have very useful outcomes. It may even be applicable in cancer research and so on. Indeed, there is a cancer hospital at Brookhaven. 
for that very purpose, to find out what atomic theory can tell us about the cure for cancer. Yes, sir. Uh, you mentioned about the, uh, the hole in the ground in Nebraska and underground lake. What, what is it? What are they planning to do? Or what? Uh, maybe Dr. Williams can help me out here. In Nebraska, for the last few years, there has been an experiment put on by the Brookhaven scientists to discover neutrinos. Now, to find a neutrino, what is a neutrino? Well, it's another one of those little particles, supposedly that is being given off by the sun in the nuclear fusion process. Now, a neutrino is very penetrating. It goes through everything without leaving a trace. But one way these scientists have said that they can tell if there are neutrinos coming from the sun is to put thousands of gallons of carbon tetrachloride in an old mine in the breast. I don't know how many gallons, five, 10,000 gallons of cleaning fluid. So that when a neutrino goes through the earth about a mile down and hits this cleaning fluid, it will change one of the chlorine atoms in the carbon tetrachloride into argon. All they have to do then is take a detector to see if there's any argon present <coughs> in all this cleaning fluid and they have discovered a neutrino. Now, Dr. Jack Eddy says, we have not been finding any of that argon in the cleaning fluid, therefore the sun is not giving it out, therefore the sun must be out. Another scientist said that it could also be true that the sun is not making its energy the way you think it is, and therefore there aren't any neutrinos in the first place. Well, the same scientists aren't giving up that easily. They said, our track isn't good enough. We need something more sensitive than carbon tetrachloride. We need gallium. Now, gallium is a very rare element, and it will cost a great many millions to get thousands of gallons of gallium together to discover the neutrino. And besides, they said, even if there aren't any, the gallium is pure, you can have it back. It's just as clean as when you start out. Are you saying that they don't even know if these things exist? No, we don't. They've already named them, though. Oh, yes. Well, we know neutrinos exist, but we don't know whether they're coming from the sun in the quantities they thought that they were. What about the force? We don't know for sure. What would you say, Dr. Williams? Are we sure the quark exists? very much. It's called the democracy of particles, that God is making things as we look for them. If we make this big machine, he doesn't want us to be disappointed. In the, <laughs> the same way with the universe. I don't believe theories, I just throw them out. I have a theory that God is making galaxies as we make bigger telescopes. And that's a theory nobody can disprove because we haven't seen them. If we make a big telescope, we're talking about making one three times as big as the one about Palomar, 600 inches in diameter in Hawaii. God is going to make billions more galaxies <laughs> and say, there you are, boys. <laughs> I wanted to say about quark, I haven't really got down the punchline of this story yet. In German, quark is cottage cheese. <laughs> It's not really cottage cheese. My wife and I decided it's kind of halfway between yogurt and cottage cheese with all the good things taken out. <laughs> it caused horseradish park. I went to a grocery store one night and took this back to the hotel in Munich last summer. 
I said, I'm going to have some quark and I'm going to say in my next lecture, I hate quarks. <laughs> wow, is this stuff strong. Horseradish <laughs> quark. But pure quark is just kind of like a sour cream, yogurt, cottage cheese thing. And I asked the German, what's quark? Is it cottage cheese? No, quark is quark. Of course you know what quark is. And now we're back to words again. So hey, that's the most natural thing on earth. I see nothing wrong with belittling the scientists. Well, in place, yeah. and they're constantly belittling many of them. Carl Sagan, one in particular. Yeah, I, I intended to go along to counteract Sagan a little bit, some other guys in my book, because he's not typical. Sagan is not typical. All the scientists I interviewed had random, only two were as agnostic as Carl Sagan. Only two in the whole 13 countries. Two. Sagan is unique. <coughs> and what you said is very true, that scientists have had a tendency in the past, because of the great success of science, to become arrogant. But I'll tell you another thing. that the people I spoke to, the leaders, the Nobel Prize winners, almost all of them said a top scientist is humble. And you say, see how humble I am. <laughs> One of them told me, when you're on top, you can afford to be humble. He said, on the way up, I wasn't humble. But after I got the Nobel Prize, I was humble. Science has been humble in the last 10 or 20 years. <coughs> because many of the things that science has produced have not always solved our problems. Now, that's not the scientists doing, you say. Well, in a way, it is. We are responsible for what we do. And science has learned responsibility in the last few years. Science used to be a sacred cow. That's the name of the book, in fact. Science is a sacred cow. And now, it's become something of a scapegoat from cow to goat. That's wrong, too. Science is not at fault for all the problems we have and pollution and all these other things. In fact, we're not going to solve the problems of pollution by getting rid of science. We're only going to solve them by doing more science. We can't get rid of knowledge, you know. Once an idea is out, it's there. So it's time to strike a balance. And what we're trying to do in this series is to talk about how to strike a balance between human knowledge and faith in God and our Lord and Savior which many scientists will agree is badly needed, as we'll talk about. Now, we only have two minutes left. I, I'll stay here all morning, but uh, one more question, guys. You, you, had, you had said something before uh, in regards to science, as far as we know it to be true. Yes. It's obviously you're learning more and more as you do more and more. And I was wondering if that would relate also to the Bible and the knowledge of God. And, uh, if you talk about the Reformation yes. and things change, and obviously there's more and more feelings about religion and God coming up as, as people read the Bible and study the Bible and the Bible. Certainly true. Would everyone hear that? <coughs> we learn more and more not only in science, but the same thing is of course true also in our spiritual lives. That we learn more and more. The question that arises of course is, do we know as much as we should? Do we have to be afraid that God wants us to know something we don't know yet in our spiritual life? Well, we want to talk about that in greater detail next time because the next topic will be what is faith. Today is our topic was what is science.
And we'll keep passing this around in other lessons too, so the answer will not be given until the last session. That's a little trick, you know, for you to come back. Thank you very much.